right, we are continuing the book of Deuteronomy, and so we're on chapter 24 of 32, so we're a good chunk through. I think if you do the math there, that would be what? Three-fourths? Good, yeah. Those of you who went to Alvin High School, you got that, right? Three-fourths of the way through. So notice I'm complimenting Alvin this time, not knocking you out. Okay. But anyway, uh, we're, it, it's a complicated book, right? Many of you are reading ahead and you're like, wow, this is, some of this stuff is crazy. Some of it's, we've gotten through some of the harder chapters. Today, though, still a to- difficult topic, primarily a section about divorce. And we'll get into that for a second here. Um, our scripture reader for today is, is uh, Rick Patterson. Rick, come on up here. Give him a hand as he comes. And Rick, before you read, just tell us one thing you're thankful for that the Lord's doing in your life or one thing you're you're thankful for that he's given to you. Hello. Hello. All right. uh, So one thing I'm thankful for, uh, well, one thing I'm not thankful for is not being a part of the dad jokes uh, last week (laughs) because Heather told me that you were going to make me come up here and do it. So I had to research them. So I heard you were in, uh, in the market for a boat. I know a guy. Good one. Good one. Yeah. It cringed. It cringed. All right, good. Uh, Leave it to the professionals. Go ahead, read your scripture here. Just kidding. Anyway, say what you're thankful for besides the dad jokes. Uh, I'm thankful for my family. You know, the kids went off to camp, and it was good to hear what what they got to experience. We've been with them every time they've gone to camp before because we were the leaders. And so it was neat to send our birds off uh, on their own so they could fly and you know, they didn't get in, they didn't get into any trouble, and they didn't make us look bad. So I'm thankful for that. Not that you know of, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, not that you've told me. Yet, you know. <laughs> All right, there you go. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel and he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is poor, if, and if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets that he may sleep in his own cloak and bless you, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. 
You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land without your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Father shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget to... Forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be there for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Amen. Thank you very much. All right. How many of you are old enough to remember 7-Up and what it used to be called? Anybody remember what 7-Up used to be called? Their nickname? Like the subtitle? It was the... I'm the only old guy. The Uncola. The Uncola. Because all the other ones were dark... And 7-Up was the first one that was clear, and it was a lemon-lime flavor, and it was called the Uncola. And you may remember this guy, the Uncola man. He talked about you, the lime and the lemon and all that, and he kind of sing like a reggae-type song. They even had Uncola glasses, which were basically a Coca-Cola glass turned upside down, and you basically poured it backwards. And I had a bunch of these in my house. I am not that old. I can't believe y'all don't know this stuff, okay? But anyway, it was the Uncola, and it was totally different. It was clear where all the other ones were colored and all that. And so it was very different in different ways. And this is what God is doing with Israel. The whole world at this time is very pagan, very barbaric. All kinds of violence going on, all kinds of unethical things happening. People are being treated badly, especially women and children are being treated very, in a very unbiblical way. And God raises up this nation of Israel after he brings them out of slavery and says, you are not going to be like them. You're going to be the unpagan nation. And I'm going to tell you all the ways to be unpagan. And that's kind of what this chapter is about. In fact, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is about, how Israel is going to be very different. Of course, God's people should be different, amen? If, if we don't act any different, if our lives don't show any difference as far as the joy of the Lord the holiness of God, righteous living, then we don't have a leg to stand on to tell people, oh, you need Jesus. Because we did, we don't, we've knocked our platform out from under us if we, don't, if we don't live where God is making a difference in our life. Does that mean we have to be perfect? No, not by any means. We're all far from perfect. But people should see that you handle stress differently. People should see that you handle adversity differently that you handle your children, the way you love your wife, all those things should be very different than the world around us. And that's what God is doing here. And there's, there's a whole bunch of things. I want to just shoot through them quickly. I'll spend most of the time on the first two and then kind of rapid fire through the last. So you see, these are all going to be uns, okay? And so there's the undoing of marriage, 
which God prohibits and talks about doing damage control. And then there's the unbelievable honeymoon. And number three, the uncaring use of a pledge or deposit, the unpracticed, the ungodly practice of slavery, unclean skin diseases, talk about leprosy, unethical loan practices, uh, un underhanded labor treatment, unfair capital punishment, unjust treatment of the helpless, and the tenth one, unselfish care for the needy. So there's your list of ten. It's kind of an elaboration on, in many ways, application of the Ten Commandments. So let's start with the first one here, uh, the undoing of marriage. And keep in mind, God is not suggesting divorce. He's doing damage control because people were doing it anyway. So he says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he finds no favor in her eyes because he's found some indecency in her. And this word was kind of left open for interpretation. And a lot of people had a hard time with, what does that mean, indecency? Does it mean you figured out that she's had an affair, that maybe there's some type of STD involved, or maybe you figured out that she actually wasn't a virgin when you got married? There's all kinds of things that could be in this, but because people wanted to twist the scriptures the way they wanted to, it, many rabbis took this and literally said, if she burns the toast, if she talks back to you, if she spins in public, if she lets her hair down in public, all these kind of way out things, and these guys were like divorcing for any reason and showing a total disrespect for marriage. Um, it says that if he writes her a certificate of divorce, she had to go through the legal process, and he sends her out of his house. In other words, she, she's in a now helpless situation because women weren't the breadwinners at this time, and a woman to work outside the home was very difficult, and so now he's sending her out in a very difficult way. She's probably going to go back to her parents, or she'll go back to family. And it says that if she goes out, and she becomes another man's wife, okay? Now follow how, how this. If that guy decides, I don't like her either, the prohibition is she can't go back to the first guy. And you say, well, what is that about? Well, there's several principles involved here. Number one God is making a state. First of all, God hates divorce. That's all throughout the scripture. And he said that the only reason there's these, there's these regulations on divorce is not because he's recommending it. It's because people were doing it anyway. Jesus said because of the hardness of man's heart. So he said, okay, if you're going to do it anyway, at least here's your, some more guidelines. And one of the things he's saying is marriage is not some trial basis thing where you try someone out for a while. And if you don't like it, you go try someone else. And worse yet, if you don't like that person, say, you know what? I think the better, first one was better. Ditch her, go back to the first. God says, no, no, no. We're not playing musical chairs with people. You're not treating women like property like the rest of the world was. Women are not second-class citizens like the rest of the world was treating women. You will treat her with dignity and respect. If you divorce her, don't ever try to get her back because she's not, never going to be yours again because we don't treat people like, oh, I like this for a while. Then I'm going to go back to this one. We're not doing that is what God is trying to make very, very clear. Matthew 19, 3, Jesus is in a debate with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are, who are his religious enemies. And again, it's interesting that the people that Jesus really got in the face of most were the people who were the most religious. And that is still true today, especially in America where we're supposed to be a Christian nation and there's a lot of people going to church this morning, but some of the biggest opponents of God claim to worship God. And, and they really what they're worshiping is churchianity, not Christianity. Uh, Matthew 19.3 says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him 
by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There was two groups of rabbis at this time. And in fact, last night we watched um, episode five of season two of The Chosen. If you haven't been following those, you really, really, really need to watch those. But last night they talked about this very thing, that there's the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. One was, Shammai was very conservative and said, you can't divorce for any reason other than you catch them in adultery. And Hillel was, you can divorce for anything you want. Just make up an excuse and we'll go ahead and write the certificate for you. And they're saying, hey, settle the dispute between us. And, but again, they're not wanting the answers to the question. They're wanting to divide and conquer. Because if he gives one answer one way, half the Jews will hate him and the other half will still probably hate him. But if he answers this way, then he's dividing and he won't have the following he does because people wanted to be able to divorce for any reason. And by the way, it's really interesting. When you're talking to someone who is a skeptic, you need to um, discern what type of skeptic they are. And you need to pray about that. If they truly are seeking for answers from God, then... Andrew, have a seat right there. Don't move again. If they're truly seeking answers from God, you need to answer all their questions. But some people, and you will notice this, every time you show them, well, the Bible says this. Okay, yeah, but what about this? Well, actually, that's not true because the Bible says this. Yeah, but what about this? And they keep moving the target. You're looking for someone who's not looking for answers or looking for an excuse not to worship God. And that's what Jesus saw here. Jesus saw the Pharisees, every time they asked questions, they really didn't want to know. They're just testing him. They're just trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him. And so they're like, can you do this? Can you divorce for any cause? Listen to Jesus' answer. He says, have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Now, people think that Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor. You're not reading carefully if you don't think that. Here's these guys whose job was to study the scriptures. In fact, many Pharisees had most, if not all, of the Old Testament memorized. They not only memorized verses, chapters, they memorized complete books of the Bible. And Jesus is like, so you haven't read your Bible like page one that says from the beginning God created them male and female? Now, what does that have to do with the question? Can you divorce for any cause? And, God, and Jesus says, he who created them from the beginning create, made them male and female. They didn't even ask about gender. But Jesus says, hey, since you brought up marriage, I'm going to let you know more about marriage than you even asked. By the way, it's one man and one woman, okay? And we live in a day of gender confusion. And what that's an attack on is not an attack on personal rights. It's an attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is the, the groom who is coming for his bride, the church, and they will be united. And when Christ comes into your life, like a man comes into a woman, it, the seed, the word of God, gives life within the church, and she gives birth to new life. That's the gospel. And what people are trying to do with same-sex marriages and all these other things. Now in New York, you have a case where a couple is suing for the mother to marry her son. So this stuff is getting out of control. The LGBTQ+, plus, the plus means everything and anything. And all kinds of, you're having brothers and sisters want to get married. You're having all kinds of stuff that is totally immoral and illegal because once you open the door, the floodgates happen. And that, all of this is per, not just perversion of what marriage is, but what marriage represents. And Jesus says, hey, one man, one woman for one lifetime. 
And then he goes on to say, he said, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So when you talk about Pharisees' divorce, you're not talking about two people separating. You're talking about one person being torn apart. Do you understand that's what divorce is? If two people come together in holy matrimony, and that's what we still should call it, they become one flesh spiritually and physically, emotionally, intellectually, financially, every way they should become one person to where they, they get to where they can finish each other's sandwiches, right? They can go through all that and, and remember all these things. And yet when you divorce, it hurts. Because imagine, because when the Bible says that a husband should leave his fa father and mother and cleave to his wife, the word, the Hebrew word implies like glued, glued together. Imagine taking super glue, not recommending this, don't try this at home, super glue, and putting your two hands together and just give it 15 seconds and then you have to go to the emergency room. Because if you try to do this, you try to do this, you will rip the flesh apart. And that is a picture of divorce. That two people who have been glued together, God says, man, don't try to separate that. It's not meant to be undone. Let, let not man separate. And it means any man. Don't get involved in somebody else's marriage. Don't try to mess them up and split them up. Moms, if you don't like your daughter-in-law, stay out of it. Don't be that type of mother-in-law. Don't try to separate what God has put together. And our culture, had, did you know that divorce since 1910 has gone up 700%? It was 7% in 1910. It's now hovering at 49, 48%. Let's do the math right there. So anyway, it's gone up dramatically and, and people are trying to tear marriage apart as if it's just something you can just kind of mix and match and just keep trading partners. And they said to him, well, then why did Moses command one to give certificate of divorce and send her away? Rick just read Deuteronomy 24. They're quoting it. Rick, did you see where God commanded divorce? No. You see how that subtle twist of scripture did Moses command you must get a divorce? No, he said, if you're gonna get a divorce, at least follow these guidelines. He didn't say you have to get divorced. Many people say, oh, well, I got grounds for divorce. Yes, you also have grounds for forgiveness. And you have to decide which you're gonna do, okay? There are times to divorce and it's extreme and it's extremely painful, but there are times, we'll talk about it more in a minute. Did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and then send her away? Didn't he command that? And he said, and because of the hardness of your heart, Moses didn't command it. He allowed it. He permitted it. So they, they, they're twisting the scriptures. And be careful of Bible teachers who twist the scriptures. That's one of the reasons that I've made the commitment seven years ago. I'm going to teach to you verse by verse through the Bible because I don't want it to be Gary's opinion where I pull a verse here and pull a verse there and do all that stuff. Not that you can never teach a topical message, but it shouldn't be the habit or the norm going verse by verse the way that God has presented it. So you see the difference between their command and allowed. All one little twist of scripture turns into a big catastrophe. He says, but from the beginning, it was not so. And you will see Jesus use this phrase from the beginning often. And what he's saying is God set the precedent. God cast the die on the way things should be, the way a family ought to be, the way a marriage ought to be, the way government should be, the way our relationship with God ought to be. You read Genesis and you see this is the way it should be. And right off the bat, you see people messing it up. God says, this is the way the family should be. Cain kills Abel. <laughs> I mean, just boom, right there. First family, disaster. And you see this going on over and over again. But God says, the way from the beginning, it was not so. It, divorce was never even in God's imagination when he created a man and a woman and placed them in the garden. 
He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and he, here Jesus gives clarity to what they didn't understand. The, the indecency in Deuteronomy 24, your translation might say uncleanness. There's several different translations with other words that are synonymous. Jesus tells you what the indecency is, for, except for sexual immorality. Now, and so the word here, the Greek word is porneia. Sound familiar, right? Porneia means any sexual uncleanness in the marriage. It could be something may have happened before the marriage, during the marriage. It could be, there's a lot of options there. But anyway, he says the sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So, <clears throat> in other words, if a guy says, I don't want to be married to her anymore. She's a whole lot cuter. I divorce you. I'm going to get married to her. God says, no, I still recognize that marriage and this marriage is adultery. Unless you did it for biblical grounds. Now, that opens up a whole can of worms, okay? And it's not God's worms, it's ours, because we complicate life because of sin. Does that mean that if, let's say you messed up. Let's say you divorced for wrong reasons. It wasn't because of adultery. You just didn't like each other anymore. You fought, you argued, whatever your reason was, but it wasn't for a biblical reason, and you've remarried. That act was adultery until you repent. It's not, per, some people teach perpetual adultery, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. And we'll talk about that more in a minute, okay? But if you've made that mistake, God says, you, if, if he did believe in perpetual adultery, that that is a permanent adulterous relationship, then you know the way you'd fix it? You'd divorce her and go back to your original spouse, right? But what is God? He prohibited that. He just said, you can't do that. So therefore, God can't be teaching perpetual adultery. In Matthew chapter 5, a little bit later, in verse 32, it says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, not only do you, you commit adultery, you force her to commit adultery. The woman can't just walk the streets begging for bread. She's going to have to get remarried. And you divorced her for unbiblical reasons. Now she's going to have to remarry, even though God still recognizes this one. You're putting her in a bad situation. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So let's just say this hypothetically. You're 26 years old and you're single. And you start maybe interested in a lady who's been divorced. You need to find out, so when did you get divorced? Oh, last year. And what was the reason? I don't know, we just couldn't get along anymore. You know what might be a really good thing to say? So you know what? Why don't you pray about reconciling with your husband first instead of getting involved with me? That, that's tough. That, that conversation doesn't happen very often, but it needs to. It needs to. Again, I'm not, again, I'm not saying, I'm not teaching perpetual adultery. You get that, right? Okay. So uh, again, I'm divorced and remarried. So we're not talking about that situation right there. But what you're seeing right here is man has just made a mess of marriage. And Moses, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, is doing damage control. This is not an endorsement as they took it. Let me just give an example. Let's say... I, I'm opposed to abortion, okay? I, and I, but it's the law in the land, which doesn't make it right. There's a lot of laws that are wrong, okay? But I, I feel so strongly about abortion's wrong, but I can't, I can't change the law overnight. But here's what I can do. Let's say that I support a law saying at least no abortions in the last trimester, which in most states, it's legal right up to the day you deliver, which is incredible. It's infanticide. But let's say a state says, you know what? We can't overturn abortion right now, but at least let's regulate it to you. At least you have to, it has to be within the first trimester or at least definitely not the last trimester. If a politician did that and signed that bill into law, would you say he's promoting abortion? 
No, he's just trying to regulate what he's already opposed to. So by God regulating divorce doesn't mean he's for divorce. He's just doing damage control. So what are the grounds for divorce? The Bible gives two, maybe three, depending on how you will look at it. First of all, adultery, which doesn't always mean just with someone else that's married. It means any immorality within the marriage. I strongly believe that if one or other spouse is addicted to pornography and is not repenting, just because it's not with a real person doesn't mean it's not porneia. I mean, it's named after this word, okay? Again, if your husband or your wife messes up and watches something or whatever and they repent or whatever, I don't think you should, man, run to and get a lawyer, okay? But we are, I do think it's different. Some people would say it's not as bad. Some women would say it's worse. <laughs> because some women, I heard one woman put it this way, I can compete with that woman. I can't compete with those women on the screen. <laughs> and that, that's just, you know, because those women on the screen aren't real. They're all doctored up and photoshopped and, and all that stuff and plastic and everything else. And so some women would even say they think that's worse if you're addicted to porn. I'd rather you had a one-night stand with someone else than be addicted to this stuff. So is there room for it there? Possibly. The second reason is abandonment. Paul spells this out in 1 Corinthians 7, 15. He says, but if, an, if you're married to an unbeliever and the unbelieving partner separates or just leaves you, this doesn't, it's not talking about legal separation. Don't, don't backward them. Don't take the, today's word and pour it back into the Bible. Separates, in other words, they leave you, not just temporary separation. Let it be so. Let them depart. In fact, the King James says, if the unbeliever departs, let them depart. In, su in such cases, the brother or sister, the one who's the Christian, is not enslaved. They're not bound. In other words, they are free to remarry. So you get saved and your spouse doesn't and after a few years, they get tired of all this Jesus stuff and they decide, I'm out of here. Paul says, you're free to remarry. They left you, you've been abandoned. Uh, and that could even go for if you're abandoned by a Christian. Of course, you would question whether or not they're a Christian if they've abandoned the marriage. But um, how many of you saw on America's Got Talent, the, the young lady named Nightbird that sang? Okay. Uh, she's 30 years old. She had can diagnosed with cancer in 2016. She's a graduate of Liberty University, the world's largest Christian university, by the way. And she got healed from that first cancer, but then a couple years later, it's back. And I forget which one, I think it was Simon that asked her, you know, uh, so how are you now? And she said, well, the doctors are giving me a 2% chance of living. And so she's literally, I mean, she has very little hair and she's singing this song in front of them. And you ought to look it up. But anyway, um, why did I say all that? <laughs> um, oh, so the second time around that she got cancer and she's going through chemo treatment, her husband of five years decides to leave. What a scumball. I mean, I, I, don't, know. I don't know all the circumstances, but you'd have to be pretty pitiful. Tammy would have to treat me really bad, and I still would just sit there and love her anyway through the cancer. Um, all right, so that's the second ground. The third ground is abuse, and I put an, an asterisk by it. Because because there's nothing in the Bible that says anything about this, okay? But I think it's like a common sense thing. Would any one of us, would Jesus tell a woman who is being punched in the face repeatedly by her husband every weekend when he gets drunk, you need to stay there? I just can't imagine that at all. You say, well then Gary, why is the Bible silent about it? Well again, everything is about context. Let's go back to, let's go back to biblical times. There's no police, there's no 911, the village takes care of everybody. And if a woman gets married to this man, 
All of her brothers still live in town, and so does her dad. If she shows up at the dinner with a black eye, someone else is going down. All the brothers and the dad and every, pretty much all the men in the village are going to pound this guy. You touched a woman? You actually laid your hands on a woman? And I, I guarantee you, they would take care of it themselves. I think that's why the Bible doesn't mention anything about it. Now, maybe that's a stretch. That's just my opinion. In fact, tell the person next to you, that's his opinion. Okay, go ahead. Um, so, I do believe, just from a common sense standpoint, I don't think that the Bible even grasps the whole idea of a, woman, a man being allowed to beat a woman over and over again. I just can't see that. I think abuse, uh, and then you could start the whole subject of, are you talking about verbal abuse and all this stuff like that? Again, it becomes a slippery slope, and man's messes are really hard to clean up. So let's talk for a moment about avoiding divorce, since this is a big part of this chapter. Um, Proper selection helps, okay? Many people you've talked to when they got the, that you know they're divorced will tell you, I kind of knew from the beginning it was, a dumb, it was a dumb mistake, okay? Or I should have known from the beginning. Now, some people will retroactively say it was a mistake, but if you'd asked them two weeks after they got married, they'd be like, oh, he's the greatest thing in the world. You know, but I know some, one person for sure, they knew that the, the, when they were walking down the aisle, they're like, I can't believe I'm doing this. As in, this was, this was the most foolish thing I've ever done. So choosing properly in the first place helps. Kids, listen to me. Listen to your mom and dad. If your mom and dad say, pull you aside and say, hey, he's nice and all, but he's not the guy for you. Don't start the whole, but I love him. And, I'm, and he promised he'd change and he promised he'd go to church. Man, listen to not only your mom and dad, the Bible says in a multitude of counselors, there's safety. Go find seven godly people beside your mom and dad, godly people, and say, hey, I'm thinking about dating this guy, blah, 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 or this girl, and I'm thinking of marrying them. What do you think? Okay? I know one situation where the whole family sat, they did an intervention, sat the daughter down, told her the guy she's marrying was a loser and all those things. He had all kinds of problems. He was totally opposite of her in every way. No compatibility other than that he was a male and she was a female and they were attracted. That was pretty much the only thing they had going on. She married him anyway. Marriage did not last more than two years. And of course, then she apologizes to her family for not listening. Proper selection helps. But you know what? Proper selection is not everything. Because any selection you make is going to be very difficult. Even if you have a ton in common and you both love Jesus... Marriage is going to be very difficult. And all the married people said, amen. amen. Some of you said louder than others. Good for you, whatever. I don't know. Um, you may discuss that later. But why? Why is marriage so difficult? Even if your selection is one of the best of a thousand people, you, he was the best out of all those people, she was the best of all those people, it's still going to be extremely difficult. And here's why. Even the best selection is one selfish sinner marrying another selfish sinner. That's what's going to be happening. You have two people who have been raised, who have been told by their parents, you're awesome. You're the best thing in the world. Here's their certificate for nothing. Here's a participation trophy. You're amazing. You're and then you get married and you think, I'm amazing. I'm going to believe what my parents say. Why won't you listen to me? Because I'm amazing. Everybody's been telling me I'm amazing. All my teachers told me I'm amazing. And you won't listen to me. You know, why do you serve the food that way? Why do you park the car that way? And all this stuff. And your families are so different. And you both are so selfish thinking you're, you're it. And what you have to realize is the biggest problem in your marriage is in the mirror. And you hear that all the time in counseling, and people are like, yeah, well, I know we're supposed to say that, but really, have you met her? No, I'm telling you, you're, we have two selfish sinners, and the only way 
this is going to work out really well is if the Holy Spirit of God intervenes and fills these two selfish sinners with the Holy Spirit of God to where the love of God is shed abroad in their hearts and overflows on one another. To where you see Christ in the other person and they see Christ in you and that becomes the biggest attraction because after he doesn't look as hot as he did his senior year and she doesn't look as good before she had babies and stuff like that, all that stuff, after all that goes away, it's the spark in their eye of, I know you love Jesus and I love you. Man, my kids can attest to this. Tammy and I sometimes have some very heated fellowship, okay, I had to borrow Charles's phrase. And, you know, here we've been married, it's gone on 17 years. We don't argue as much as we used to. But we've had some pretty heavy ones. But you know what? I know that woman loves Jesus more than she loves me. And I'm willing to stick it out no matter what for her. And she puts up with all my stupidity because she knows I try to love Jesus. And I'm telling you, that is what's going to make a marriage. And kids, unmarried people, single folk, you've got to find that in the other person. If they don't love Jesus, don't be a missionary dating because 90% of the time, missionary dating does not work. Every, now, every time I preach that, someone comes to me and says, well, my wife wasn't married. I wasn't saved when we got married. She got saved later, so God used it. Yes, he did. You kind of broke his rules anyway, and God worked it out and showed mercy on you is what happened. So don't get involved in that and trust Jesus to find the right person for you. A poor selection coupled with extremely difficult cir circumstances is a recipe for divorce. You don't choose right the first time and then the finances get tough or temptation comes in or you start arguing, man, poor selection and difficult life, man, you're just asking for it in every way. So my observation is, and this is again just my observation, I believe a successful marriage is 30% good selection and 70% die hard commitment. Because think about when you're making a selection. You're 21, 22, 23, hopefully not younger, but some of you are. How smart are you at that age? You remember when you turned 32 and you realized how dumb you were at 22? And you made the biggest decision of your life at that age? So, you know, the odds of us making a really good selection are pretty slim. But the chances of us staying married because we are so rock solid, die hard committed to it are as only as strong as we make it. You need to just, you know what, say, hey, maybe I didn't pick the best. But it's not about picking the best because whoever you pick is going to be a selfish sinner. It's about how committed you plan to be from here on. You know, there's three things statistically proven that will bring the divorce rate down to at least 9%. Some people say 2%. Depends on whose stats you read. But all of them agree. Less than 10% chance of divorce. If you will do these three things, okay, and again, young people, I sure hope you're listening. Parents, I hope you're listening. You pass this on to your kids and your grandkids. Number one, don't marry before 22. Some people are saying, oops. <laughs> What's going on there? Well, let me tell you something. The person you were at 18 is nothing like the person you are at 22. In just four years, dramatic change, dramatic maturity, dramatic responsibility, dramatic personality shift. So if you think he's amazing at 18... He's not going to be that way at 22. He may totally change, maybe for the better, but probably for the worse. So why don't you let him figure out growing up first before you marry him? 22, okay? Now that's difficult in our society, but another factor that's going on, what else is going on at 22? What else is really obvious right around 22? Graduating college. Not all, but most people graduate. You go to college for four years at 18, do the math right there. To get college behind you, 
and all that. Now, of course, today, our government has said, go to college, everybody go to college, everybody go to college. Here, we'll loan you money, we'll loan you money, we'll loan you money. And now you got people graduating with all tons and tons of debt. And what's excuse number one of arguments in marriage? Finances and debt. We're just setting up people for divorce, and our government is not helping us at all. Number two, don't make a baby before marriage. And I have a really good suggestion on how not to do that. Don't have sex before marriage. God knows what he's talking about. It's not, just, it's not just God is trying to spool your fun. No, he's trying to help you to stay married for an entire life to where you can grow old together, to where your honeymoon will be the most special thing and you, give, you've give, you can give all of yourself to one person for your life, whole lifetime. Don't make it maybe before marriage. And then number three, don't live together before marriage. Man, what does the world tell you the exact opposite? You got to test drive the car before you buy it. It doesn't work that way. Because when you live together and you pretend you're married and you do all these married things, but you're not married, you're like, you're, it's a constant dress rehearsal. I've got to be my best or he's going to leave. I've got to act my best or she's going to leave. And you're, so now you're getting intimate with someone you don't fully trust is going to be there tomorrow. And you're not, you're not committed. And there's so many reasons why it just goes downhill. And this is not biblical research. This is not Christian research. This is the Institute for a Family, a secularization that's put out these numbers that you will bring divorce rate down to 9% or less if you'll simply do these three things. Next verse talks about an unbelievable honeymoon. If you get married, you don't work, you don't go to war, you don't do any public service for a whole year. How many of you went on a honeymoon for a week or more? Raise your hand. A week or more? Anybody? Julian, put your hand down. Oh, my gosh. How many of you went on? Anybody here go on a two-week honeymoon? No? Do you realize the Bible here is suggesting for, for the nation of Israel, not saying this is a commandment for us today, that they go on a honeymoon that is longer than every marriage in this room combined. Think about that. Now, also think about this. Think about how much work went into this. Before you could marry a girl, you, had, you and your dad or some combination thereof had to save up enough money, enough crops, enough everything you needed to survive for a year so that you didn't have to work for a year. You talk about a guy getting ready to get married. And that's why in the Bible, in the New Testament, you saw guys sometimes didn't get married until age 30 because they were saving up and saving up and they were building a house and they were fencing it in and they were raising their livestock and they were getting financially independent and then they said, okay, now let's get married. And by the way, that's why in Jesus says in John chapter 14, in my father's house, okay, the father owned the plantation. When a son got old enough to marry, he'd say, okay, son, you get the back 40 acres, but it's still on the father's property. In my father's plantation, if you will, are many rooms I go to prepare a place for you. You're my bride. We're engaged, but I'm going to go build you the most amazing house. And when it's done and ready, I'm going to come back and get you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Again, the world's trying to destroy that beautiful picture. And it says, that here in the ESV, it says to be happy with his wife. It's hard to translate. So you'll see several translations say different things. In fact, the King James says um, to cheer up his wife. <laughs> 
Sorry, honey, you're married to me. Cheer up, honey. <laughs> it's not that bad. Uh, I know you miss your mom and dad, but cheer up, honey. <laughs> I'll try my best. And yeah, I know this house isn't what it should be. That's not what it's saying, cheer up, in that sense that we would understand today. Probably the best translation of this is in the, um, the Holman, the HCSB, the Holman uh, Christian Study Bible or Standard Bible. And what, or some people see the HCSB as Hardcore Southern Baptist Bible. Anyway, either one of those. It says to bring joy to your wife. Now, you've heard the phrase before, and there's some truth to it. Happy wife, happy life. Okay, it depends on what you mean by this. If happy wife equals happy life because you as a godly husband serve your wife like Christ loves the church, like Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, that you are going to be a servant and you're going to love your wife and cherish your wife and do all these special things for her. If that's what it means happy, to make her happy in that regard, then yes, that's what it means. If, if it's the joke on the beer cans, this one, then that's not what we're talking about. Like, just say yes, shut up, don't argue with her, just give her whatever she wants to shut her up, then no, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about appeasement. Okay, I don't want to argue, so just, sure, whatever you say, fine. Don't be the passive husband. Now, over little things, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, we, we don't have to go to Taco Bell. That's where I really want to go. But no, we'll go, we'll go to your place, okay? You, obviously, over little things, obviously, submit to one another. But if you are, if you really are not standing on principle because you don't want to argue with your wife, then you need to grow a spine. You need to stand up, Okay. But you have to pick your battles carefully. So we're not saying this way, happy wife, just do whatever it takes to make her happy, like as in compromised principles. We're not talking about that at all. So let's talk about what it does mean. What does it mean to bring joy to your wife? And imagine this. What's, imagine for one year, imagine if your marriage for first year, all you did was just go out to the country and spend a year together. Some of you go, man, that would be amazing. Others are like, that would go crazy. <laughs> you know? But the thing was to work these things out and to be separated from mom and dad, to cu cut the apron strings. And what else could happen? What else would probably happen in the first year of marriage? Have a baby. Because birth control wasn't invented, and having baby be babies was an awesome thing back then. Today it's like, oh, phew, I can't believe I'm pregnant. You know? And it's sad that we've we devalue babies that much in our society. But they, they would, every Jewish woman wanted to have a baby, especially a baby boy, because why? She thought maybe my son will be the Messiah or better yet, or, not, or maybe almost as good is that I might be part of the lineage of the Messiah. So giving birth to kids was an amazing thing. The more, the better. To be barren, you read that over in the Bible, to not be able to have kids was almost like a curse. They just, they didn't enjoy it all. So think about what would happen if in the first month or two or three she got pregnant, then guess what? Dad is there for the delivery and for the next one, two or three months after that before he went to work. So this was the Family Leave Act right here in Deuteronomy. It was, it was better than the Family Leave Act. It was already right there in this whole situation. But how do we bring joy to our wife in, in the first year of marriage or in marriage in general? Ephesians 5 gives us the recipe. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You know what's interesting? Nowhere in the Bible are women ever commanded to love their husbands. You know why? It's a given. Women naturally are loving. Women are naturally compassionate and kind. Us guys are dense. Everything goes over our heads. We don't have a clue. We have, God has to say, love your wife. Oh, okay, yeah, love. Yeah, all right, that's right. I was going to watch the game, but no, here we go. Um, we, 
it says, now I want you to notice the three ways that Christ loves the church. And these are the three primary ways that you to love your wife and to bring joy to her. You give yourself up for her. You make sacrifices. Yeah, you wanted a boat. Forget it. Maybe you don't need to buy a boat. Maybe you wanted a sports car. Forget your midlife crisis. Let's invest in your wife. There's a lot of things you may have to sacrifice, may have, may have to do without to sacrifice for your wife, not to mention your kids, but you give yourself up. Think of all that Jesus sacrificed. When Jesus turned 30, he didn't get married. He forego a physical marriage. He, he was wanted to marry us as the bride of Christ. He forego, forego forewent, I don't know, um, fatherhood, having children. He gave up his career, and yes, he gave up his life. He, he was the picture, the personification of sacrifice. Then it says he sanctified her. Jesus Christ sets his people apart. Something that's sanctified, the word also could be translated holy, okay, to make her holy. Your wife needs to know that she is special above and beyond any other woman on the planet. You're constantly telling her how wonderful she is, how she's the only one for you. Her, your eyes are for her only. Everything is about her and how much you love her. Make your wife feel special. Sanctify her. And then cleanse her. You are her spiritual leader. And how is that done? You help her clean up her life as you clean up your life together with the word. Okay? Guys, you're not going to make your wife better by just constantly, well, I wish you would be like so-and-so. My mom didn't do it that way. All that criticism and complaining. And women, you're not going to make your husband better by nagging him into it. It may work, but in the long run, you may have a, a better behaving husband, but you will have a bitter-hearted husband if you just nag for change. So you see sacrifice, making them feel special by sanctifying them, and being in the Word together so that you can grow spiritually. Think about what God has given you. He has given you someone who sees the world totally opposite from you. Do not men and women see things differently. Okay? That's why God didn't have you marry someone the same sex as you because you guys would just agree on everything. A woman sees things very differently and she will see in you flaws you did not see in yourself. Your mom saw you, but you were her baby, so she wasn't going to tell you. Your dad didn't see him because he's oblivious just like you are. Your best friends don't want to hurt your feelings, but your wife will tell you what's wrong with you, right? Amen, guys? And, and, but we need to do this in a loving way to where we're cleansing one another in the Word by getting in the Word of God. So let's run through the rest of these rapid fire, and I'll tell you what the main point of this chapter. There was the ungodly practice of slavery. Stealing a person to make them a slave was unbiblical. The next time you hear an atheist say on Facebook or some other place, the Bible condones slavery, they have no idea what they're talking about. And for those who haven't been here or new to revolution, I've taught on this a lot, but I'll just repeat it. Slavery in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about slaves obey your masters, it's talking about a bond servant, someone who chose to be a, a slave, if you will, to pay off a debt. And after five or six years or whatever it took to pay off the debt, they were free. You didn't beat them. They owned their own home. They chose their own wife. When the debt was paid off, they were gone. It had nothing to do with the Western civilization uh, slavery of the last couple centuries. Nothing to do about it. So just, and you know what? The people who teach that, most of them know it's not true. But they know that college freshmen are ignorant and aren't going to do a simple Google search. Because if they can get rid of the Bible, then they can party hardy while they're at college. It's just that simple. Um, in fact, the Bible took this evil so seriously 
that it says if you, if you steal somebody and make them your slave, we're killing you. Capital punishment right there, death penalty. That's how seriously God hated this crime. Um, next one, unclean skin disease. Three times in this passage, he says, take care or be careful. Do you think this is serious? Okay, leprosy at that time when there was no cure for it, even today it's just manageable, but it, it's very rare. But even when it, it does happen, it's just manageable at best. And he says, do all the Levitical priests told you to do. In Leviticus chapter 13, there's a whole formula. The Bible taught how to cleanse yourself, how to quarantine, how to uh, isolate, to not contaminate everything, to change clothing, to wrap in linen strips. Everything that medicine does today, the Bible taught thousands of years ago, showing that the Bible, proving that the Bible is truly the word of God and scientific. Um, but it says, be careful, be careful, be careful. And here's why. Because in the Bible, leprosy is a picture of sin. And that sin spreads slowly but surely, and it's fatal. And just exposure to a little bit of sin can infect your whole life. And what do you do with sin? You purge it out immediately. You don't mess around with it. You wipe it out. You isolate it. You keep it far away from you. And he gives you an example. He says, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out. Well, let's read about what, happened, what Miriam did. Numbers chapter 12, the right book right before Deuteronomy. Miriam and Aaron, who are they? Younger brother and sister of who? A Moses, okay? Miriam was the worship leader. She, can you imagine this woman leading th tens of thousands of people and singing? That was amazing. And then Aaron was Moses' right-hand man because Moses wouldn't do it by himself because he had a speech impediment or whatever. But together they spoke against uh, Moses. Notice they didn't hear their first sin. They didn't speak to Moses about what their problem was. They spoke about him. And every time in the Bible you see, it's Aaron and Miriam, Aaron and Miriam. But this time it's switched. Why? Because she's doing the talking and he's doing the listening. In fact, the word spoke against is in the feminine, saying basically she's the one going blah, 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 blah. And instead of Aaron going, hey, hey, stop talking about our brother. He's not just our brother. He's the leader God has given us. He's giving ear to it. So imagine there's two people over there complaining. One's doing all the talking. We would say, oh, they're talking about you. Well, really, one's talking, one's listening, but the conversation is about you. So Miriam, because she's the instigator, that's why she's the one that got leprosy and not Aaron. So they spoke about Moses and against him, not to him. Number two, why did they complain? Because Moses took a woman who was black. Right there. God says, what, if, Matt, what difference does color matter? If she's willing to worship me and convert to the children of Israel, all kinds of colors came into Israel. There was plans for conversion. Baptism in the Old Testament was a Gentile saying, no, your God's a true God, and they would dip in a, in a cleansing pool, and they'd become, it didn't matter what color they were. That's why you can't narrow down what a Jew is ethnically, because there's black Jews, Asian Jews, there's all kinds of different colors of Jews. And Moses married a, a woman from the northern coast of Africa, and they got all upset about it because they were being racist. And, says, and then they also, they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? How about us? We're equal to Moses. So they're bucking Moses' authority. So they're gossiping, they're being racist, and they're being rebellious. I could have come up with three R's there, but I didn't. But anyway, they're, they're doing all these things, and God says, okay, enough is enough. And God came down, God said to Moses, get your brother and sister. The three of you, we're having a conversation. Let's take this outside. And literally, God meets them outside. He comes down in the cloud, 
And in his thunderous voice, I wish Chris Sharp was here to do God's voice, but he thunders God's voice and tells him, because of your sin, you're going to be punished, Miriam. And when the cloud lifts, Aaron looks at Miriam and goes, oh, and she is covered white head to toe. He says, oh, you want to be white? I'll give you white. I'll give you leprosy. How's that for being white? And so she's covered head to toe in this leprosy, and she's judged for it. So notice again, it's Miriam first. So now let's move on quickly to the next one. Oh, so the main point of leprosy, though, is it's sin. Okay, and, and Miriam illustrated this sin. That's why he said, remember her. Uh, uncaring use of a pledge. When you make a loan of your neighbor of any sort, whether it's cash or you loan them your oxen or you loan them three bushels of corn, whatever it may be, you don't go into his house to collect the pledge. What is a pledge? A pledge is a deposit or a down payment, or some people might call it collateral, okay? Collateral was used in the Bible often. Um, in fact, uh, let's go here. In Genesis 38, Judah, okay, one of Judah's sons died. His, the son, his daughter-in-law said, I still haven't had a child yet. And the, the, the Leverite law was, one of the brothers who was unmarried needed to marry her to carry on the family name. It wasn't something the Bible commanded. It's just what people in that culture did as a matter of survival and to carry on the lineage and have children be able to take care of in your old age and all that stuff. So he would not make the brother do it. And she's like, okay, I'll show you. So Judah, when he saw this daughter-in-law, he thought she was a prostitute because she went out, she dressed up like a prostitute. And she said, he... he he saw that she was soliciting, and so he offers her something to go in. And she said, well, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. In other words, I'll pay you later. And, of course, what does she need? She needs a deposit. She needs collateral. Well, if you'll give me a pledge, give me something as a deposit, as collateral, then you can send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she didn't ask. Any one of these would have been good enough, but she asked for all three. I want your signet ring, Okay. A man who was very wealthy and had lots of property and sons, he would take a, like, he would write, like, something, like a bill of sale. He'd roll up, they'd tie it up, they'd pour, like, wax on it, and then he'd press his ring into the, the wax and make an impression on it so that when they got there, they'd see the impression of the ring of Judah. And then he says, also your cord. Most likely, this was what was around his neck. And sometimes men especially men who were distinguished would have like a necklace and there might be a family medallion at the end of this necklace and that was the cord. And then your staff was the walking stick but there, this was something that was in the family that every generation they would carve a different name into it and they'd have all kinds of carving this and usually it was very ornate and decorative and this was your position of authority. And she asked for all three and him being as foolish as he was and desperate I won't use any other words. In that situation, he gives all three to her. <clears throat> so, you shall stand outside and you don't go in someone's house to get the collateral. You stay outside and say, hey, since I loaned you this, I'm here to collect the deposit. But you politely stand outside. You don't go in. Remember when we were at Bounstown? We had a property? Remember there was a church that moved in behind us? And it was a predominantly African-American church. And we're still friends with, I am still communicate with them today. And they've moved to another location also. Well, the, the, the landlord was Asian. This is nothing against Asians. I'm just saying, trying to say he was a different ethnicity to them. 
they were like everybody else at the beginning of COVID were behind on their rent because everything was falling apart back then. He went into the middle of their Sunday morning service and said, where's my rent? Where's my money? And they're like, um, Mr. So-and-so, we're, we're having church right now. We, we will talk to you later. And he goes, what's wrong with you people? Underlining you people. I mean, oh my gosh, this the tap. He walks into the house of God trying to collect his money. This verse says you don't do that kind of stuff. You, you may have loaned this person money, but it doesn't mean you mistreat them. It doesn't mean you disrespect them in front of their family. You stand outside, let them bring the pledge out, whether it's their rod or whether it's a piece of equipment or an animal, whatever you're using as collateral, you stay outside and show respect. <clears throat> um, it says, and if he's poor, you shall not sleep in his pledge. And the next verse will tell you, it's, sometimes people would give their outer garment their cloak. So imagine, like you have a really nice winter jacket, okay? And that's like, your, it's a very valuable jacket, okay? Everybody this day, they had something like that. In fact, their family usually spent a lot of money to make that because you wore this to stay warm, and at night you took it off and you rolled it up and made it your pillow if you were traveling. This was something that identified you. Remember, Joseph had a coat of many colors so everybody could identify him a certain way. This was who you are. So you didn't take someone's cloak, and if you did, you better not go around wearing it or sleeping in it for sure. Okay, so you didn't, you didn't disrespect someone by doing that. And it says that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. So it said, basically, when the sun came down, you would go knock on the guy's door and say, hey, I know you gave me your cloak as collateral, but here, stay warm tonight. I'll see you tomorrow. And they'd go to bed that night and say, you know what? Not only were they nice enough to loan me some money, they even gave me the collateral back so I could sleep in it, you know, and roll it up and have my pillow at night. It just showed that that person would bless you. You know, I'm very thankful God used this person because my crop failed last year and they gave me four bu bushels of barley to plant this year. And I told them I'd pay them back and they're nice enough to give me the collateral right back so I can have something to sleep on tonight. Showing kindness. Isaiah 38, 14, a beautiful verse says, my eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge that God himself would be your down, down payment. In other words, if you're in debt to someone and you don't have a pledge, God says, I'll be your pledge. I'll make sure that debt gets paid. And of course, the debt that gets paid is our sin debt. <clears throat> we'll talk about that more later. It also forbid underhanded treatment of labor. There was labor laws in the Bible. You shall not oppress hired workers, means day laborers. If you have a regular employee and you pay them once a month, that's cool, or once a week or whatever, but someone who's working for a day, you don't tell them to come back. If they're a day laborer, they need the money when? Today. They work today, you pay them today. Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's your brother or sojourners. You know, in, in this time in the, the world, the Canaanites hated the Hizzites, who hated the Jebusites. Everybody hated each other. And God called Israel, it, if someone's passing through your land and they do some work in your field, it doesn't matter if they're a foreigner. Don't treat them any different than you do a fellow brother of Israel. And then you saw this compassion in a barbaric world. He said, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it. So don't, don't withhold pay. Um, unfair capital punishment. Again, it's not saying capital punishment's unfair. It describes some types of capital punishment that are unfair. A father shall not be put to death because of their children. Now, I told you a couple weeks ago, and remember this. Anytime you read something in the Old Testament, it seems weird. It's because God is saying, hey, don't do the weird stuff they do. God's not making up weird commands. In other cultures around Israel at this time, 
They might kill you because your son stole something. And the Bible says, no, don't do that. If the son stole something, make him go to jail. If the son killed somebody, kill the, you put the son to death. But don't kill the dad because of what the son did. And then another word, nor, nor shall the children be put to death because of their fathers. In our culture, children are cherished probably a little too much. We went, we went from patriarchy to matriarchy to kindergarten to where dad doesn't run the home, mom doesn't run, the kids run the home. The two, kids choose what's for dinner, where we're going, what movie we're seeing, and that's probably a little too far. But back in the Bible days, you might have 13, 14 kids because you needed a lot of laborers, and one or two would be disposable. And, and the Babylonians did this all the time. If a man committed a crime and they're saying, hey, we're going to put you to death, you've been found guilty. Well, kill my son instead. I've got seven of them. And they would have their own sons and daughters put to death in their place. And it was perfectly legal that you could put you, Somebody had to die. So here, I'm going to let you have one of my kids. And the Bible saying, don't, don't do that stuff. That's craziness. Each one will be put to death for their own crime. So unjust treatment of the helpless. So you should not pervert justice. Don't twist it. Three types of people. Sojourners, fatherless, and widows. Don't, don't make the law different just because they can't sue you back. Even in America today, if you're rich enough and you get the right lawyer, you're off. And if you're poor and you can't afford a lawyer, I'm thankful on one hand that you get, our country does provide court-appointed attorneys. Not every country does. Some countries, you're on your own. Our government at least has the kind to say, but a court-appointed attorney, a public defender, it's probably a rookie lawyer who's going to get chewed up by this millionaire's lawyer, and you're going to lose. And the Bible says, hey, don't do that. Don't twist justice because whether people are helpless. It says, remember that you were a slave. You know what? All of us would treat our families better, our neighbors better, our coworkers better, if we would just stop and remember where God brought us from. Remember how stupid you were when you were young. Remember what you were like before you found Jesus. Remember how messed up things were for you at one time. If you will just remember your past, you will be more compassionate in your future. Unselfish care for the poor. It says when you reap your harvest in the field, again, leave some behind for who? Sojourner, fatherless, and widow. See that over and over again. And you saw this happen in the book of Ruth, where if you were gathering grain and you're doing this and putting in a bucket and you drop something, you're not allowed by law to go back and pick it up. And when you have the, the plow, the harvester with the oxen and you turn the corner, you have to round it off. Guess what? That little triangle on the corner, you can't have that. That's for the widows, the poor, the, orphan, the orphans. Um, it was a type of workfare to where you didn't have to pick it up and go deliver it to the poor. They didn't just get a check in the mail. They had to get up and go out in the field and get it. But you had to leave it behind. And you see that pattern there. Same three people over and over again. Widows, sojourners, orphans. And Luke, Jesus reinforces this in, in the New Testament. He says, give and what? It shall be given to you. Let me go back here. See, if you take care of the sojourner, people traveling through your country, orphans and widows, guess what God will do? He will bless your work in all your hands. You reap what you sow, literally. Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure that you give to other people. Press down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. In other words, God's not going to just directly give it to you. He's going to have other people give to you because you've been generous. Because with what measure you use, in other words, you say, hey, here, have a ton. Guess what's coming back? A ton. If you're like, okay, here, 
And this is what's coming back. Again, general principle, and you're not doing it to just to get wealthy. You're doing it because it's right. It says, and talking about your olive trees, again, what same three people again? Sojourners, fatherless, widows. Even if it's your grapes, whatever it may be, God leaves no exceptions there. You're generous with everything. He said, you shall remember again. Second time he says this, so I would say it's important. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. So look at these 10. I want you to notice where it starts. A young man and his bride having one year to just get to know and fall in love with each other. Then they have kids and they teach their kids how much they love each other and how much they love them. And then those kids see how they treat their neighbors with taking pledges, how they, this family does not justify slavery, how this family takes care of the sick and the leprous, how they, they treat people that they pay, how that there's fairness in their society, and there's, uh, they treat the helpless properly, and they take care of the needy, the widows, the orphans. And these kids grow up seeing how mom and dad do all these things. Guess what those kids do? They treat civilization with respect and honor and dignity because it all begins in the home. And that's why the home is being destroyed today. And that's why we're going to, 50 years from now, we're going to have a bunch of kids who never saw mom and dad love each other, maybe didn't even know mom or dad, that they didn't receive respect for the community, so they're going to be takers. They're just going to say, well, give me what's mine. Give me what's mine. I don't care about you. I don't care about anyone else. And this is why civilization falls apart, because the reason this chapter began with marriage and ends with helping the needy is because that's the way it works. If we're going to see what your world is telling you today is let the government, let the Republicans and the Democrats fight it out how they're going to take care of the poor. God says, no, you take care of the poor. You be the best... Uh, caregiver for the poor. The reason our government does so much social stuff is because the church has dropped the ball. All this stuff didn't, be, didn't exist over 120 years ago. The first 100 some years of our country, we didn't have social security, welfare, all these things like that. You had people taking care of people because they read and obeyed the word of God. Remember that word pledge or deposit? Listen to this. Ephesians chapter one says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through what? His blood. We were worthless. He redeemed us and made us something because he died in our place. He has forgiven our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Watch this. And in him also you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your what? Salvation. And when you heard the gospel, Jesus died for your sins. He was buried, rose again. That that's how you get saved. You believed in Christ. You trusted him. You gave him everything you were. And guess what? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Stay with me here. Watch this. Who is the guarantee, some translations say, or the pledge of our inheritance. Jesus says, guess what? You owed a great debt of sin, but I paid it. And now, not only did I pay off your debt, I have a place for you. And here's the deposit. Here's, here's basically, I'm going to give you my rod or my signet ring or whatever. In fact, I'm going to give it to you in the form of my Holy Spirit. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit living in you is the guarantee, the deposit, the down payment that heaven will someday be yours because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you if you know him this morning. Do you know him personally? I'm not asking if you're religious, if you go to church, if you believe in God. 
I want to know, have you been born again like Jesus said? Have you been redeemed by his blood because you've trusted in him? Would everybody do something for me? Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes and just pray right now? If you're a believer and you know for sure you know Christ is your savior, I want you to pray that God would open hearts and minds to receive the gospel. But if you're not sure you're saved, if you've never come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you can trust him right here today. He died, he shed his blood so that you could be redeemed, so that you could be forgiven of all that you've done. And if you will trust him, he will give you the Holy Spirit of God as a promise that eternal life is yours as a down payment. You could reach out to him in your heart right now. Maybe you could talk to him with a prayer, something like this, but do it in your own words. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner who needs a savior. I am guilty before God, but you died for my sins and I thank you for taking my place on the cross. I truly believe with all my heart you died for me, you were buried, and that you rose victorious with the promise of eternal life for all who will trust you. So right now, I trust you. I give my life to you and make you my Lord because you gave your life for me as my Savior. I make you my Lord and Savior today, and I thank you in Jesus' name. If you made that decision, I would love to have a conversation with you further and talk to you about what your next steps are as a new believer. Okay, in just a moment, we're going to do question and answer. Okay, so everybody take a deep breath. I'm sorry if my sermon was a little longer than normal. Long chapter there, but we got through it. So feel free to text those questions in. Again, if this is your first time, we have a, guest, a, a gift for you. Um, let's go ahead and do question and answer right now. Um, Sophia, come on up and give me a hand. And also, let me remind you that the newcomer's luncheon is today. If you plan to go, just see me and say, hey, we'll, we'll meet you there. And uh, we'll, we'll look forward to you joining us. So you've got some up here, too, in the favorites there. Who are the modern-day sojourners? Literally the same as them. Um, people who cross your borders. And it doesn't matter if it's legal or illegal. That's, this is not a commentary on whether people are legal or illegal. I'm all for people crossing the borders legally, okay, but there's people who have done it otherwise, and they're here. You're not going to pick and choose and ask for green cards. You're going to show compassion on all of them, okay? Uh, if I had ran for president, I would have said, I want to increase immigration. I want to double the number of people coming to this country. I just want to make it easier to come in legally. So you're fair to those people who have done it legally. But anyway, but it's not up to you to pick or choose who's legal and who's not. And you didn't see that in this passage. You just saw compassion to sojourners. So yes, we have a lot of people from other countries here. You also have people who pass through. Like every time there's a hurricane, all the workers from Louisiana come over here and start building roofs. And if, if somebody needs a place to stay because they're sleeping in their truck, maybe you give them your couch. I don't know. There's all kinds of ways. But Jesus said, who is my neighbor? Anybody, anybody in need. And you can meet that need. Good question. In Exodus 34, 7, God mentions visiting the sins of the father upon their children to the third and fourth generations. What does this mean, and how is it different than killing the son or father because of the other's sin? Great question. One is execution, and one is consequences. Okay? It doesn't say execution to the third and fourth generation. It just says that if my dad had an alcoholism problem, it might run in my family for a few generations just as a natural consequence. It doesn't say execute third and fourth. Here over here it's saying if a child, if a, if a grown son, 24 years old, breaks into a home, 
murders the wife and daughter and rapes them or whatever else, you execute him. Don't execute his dad. And again, in some cultures, they were doing that. So, but this is saying consequences to the third and fourth generation, not execution. Good question. If your wife wants a sports car, can you get one? And if you're a couple who wants the same thing, is it okay to go forward with it if God is in the picture? If God's in the picture, amen. Make your wife happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, yeah, next question. <laughs> All I was saying was, if your wife wants has been working hard for years without a vacation and you choose the sports car over a cruise with your wife, I think you need to sleep on the couch. And she'll probably see to it. <laughs> what if your best friend can't produce with his wife and asks you if you would donate yourself so he could have a child? Would that count as a sin? Would it count as a sin? I can't say as a sin because there's no Bible verse that would prohibit that. I would say it would be very unwise. Um, there's a lot of things that are foolish but not necessarily sinful, okay? The Bible doesn't condemn debt. Most of you have mortgages. The Bible condemns foolishness with debt, like running up the credit cards. This would fall under the thing, I can't say that the Bible would prohibit it, but when you've got literally millions of kids being thrown away in Cambodia, Thailand, girls being sex trafficked and all that stuff like that, why not adopt somewhere? I mean, there's literally millions of kids who don't have homes. It's, this statistic has been said, I didn't make it up, I think David Platt made it, is the one first to say, I'm not sure. He, he says it often. If everyone who claims to be a born-again Christian in America would adopt one child, we would close down every orphanage on the planet. So why make another baby on a, on a weird scenario when there's some little girl in a country that's been kicked out because she's in a little girl? I mean, in China, they want so badly to have boys. They now have, they now can have two kids. The, the prohibition on one uh, has been lifted. It's now two. But still, Chinese families, when they have a girl, you will find baby girls dropped in alleyways. And then they go straight to orphanages. And so why not adopt a, Chinese, a little Chinese girl or a little boy from Cambodia or something? That would seem like the more compassionate thing to, to do, in my opinion. That's it. All right. Good job with the questions. All right. Let's stand. And we're going to read this verse of Scripture together as God's blessing over us. If you'd change the next slide for me, Matt, that'd be awesome. And let me also announce that um, we may need some extra help putting up things today because most of our setup and takedown crew is out of town, as of a lot of other people today. So if you're willing to help for just a few minutes longer than you normally do, that'd be much appreciated. And again, uh, we do have a newcomer's luncheon today. You don't have to be a newcomer to attend. We're buying for all the newcomers. If you've never been to a newcomer's luncheon, even if you've attended Revolution for a year, um, you, can, uh, you can come to this on us. But if you've been to one before, it would be on your dime, but you're welcome to join us. In fact, it would be really good if some other leaders joined us. So let's go back to the scripture there for me. That'd be great. All right, let's read this together nice and loud and as a blessing over one another. Philippians 1, 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God bless you. You may be dismissed. <laughs>